Coming up in this episode, another bill to ban female genital cutting reaches the legislature, but does it have any chance of passing? Those 73 lawmakers in the House, few of them will support our bill. The latest warlord to face justice, Koti Kamara of Ulimo, goes on trial in Paris this month. We hear from victims in Lofa. In says, our investigation finds one locking company that shipped three million dollars of timber while telling the community they have shipped nothing and can't meet the community agreements. They're running summer plenty here. They're here. No safe water for us. You are listening to Democracy in Focus. Welcome to a new program from New Narratives looking at Liberia's governance and democracy in the run-up the next year's election. It's a collaboration with Front Page Africa where we're reporting from some of Liberia's best reporters of the New Narratives program. I'm Anthony Stevens. And I'm Evelyn Padesigui. A new bill in the Liberian legislature will make female genital cutting illegal. Liberia is one of the three West African nations which has yet to ban the practice. But as you all know, cutting is a deeply entrenched part of our traditional societies. But I found in my reporting, even without a ban, many Liberians are deserting the Sunday society. In desperation to keep their income, some traditional leaders have even resorted to kidnapping girls and extorting money from their parents. For dearest, the physical wounds have healed, but the trauma has never gone away. They do things that ought to now want think only I can still be feeling hurt. Dera was 17 when traditional leaders in her Mount Barclay community kidnapped her and took her to a secret location for a Sunday boy school where girls spent six months learning how to be wives and mothers. Dera is not her real name. We are keeping that secret because of the threats traditional leaders make against anyone who speaks about what happened in the boy school. Dera was only there six weeks before her mother found her but it was long enough for the traditional leaders known as Zos to hold her down and cut off her external genitalia with a razor blade. Dara's mother knew who took her daughter and pleaded for help from police and the Ministry of Internal Affairs, which deals with Zos. They told her they could do nothing because it was a traditional matter. A bill being considered by the House of Representatives would change that. That would be a relief for Dara's. I would be so glad for the representative to post up to the FGM because it bringing a lot of step back to really girls. Few people dispute that female genital cutting is harmful to girls. It's cited a huge human rights violation in many international conventions that Liberia has signed, including African ones. In a letter introducing the bill, the House of Representatives Deputy Speaker Fonati Kofa said, the data is abundant that FGM has enormous physical, social, and political implications far beyond the painful procedure usually practiced by non-medical personnel. And that evidence is overwhelming that the cost the traditional practices overweight, the benefits and unequivocal discrimination maintained against girls and women. This is not the first time female genital cutting has made it to the legislature. In 2019, legislators balled to pressure from Zoos to scrap a provision banning cutting from the domestic violence law. Activists fear it will happen again. 
those 73 lawmakers in the House, few of them will support our bill. Tamba Johnson has he for she crusader, an organization of men fighting gender-based violence. And because many of them want to be re-elected, and because they want to be re-elected, they want to buy the sentiment and the support of the traditional people. In a sense that they will be playing game with the traditional people to buy the sentiment and buy the support. And they will be playing game with the international community to show that they are in the interest of best practice. In a phone call, Deputy Speaker Fonati Kova confirmed that the bill does not have the votes to pass it. But he said, quote, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing and expressed hope that legislators would find the political courage to pass the bill within this year. Here in a little town on the outskirts of Wanga City, known as Cotton Tree, Chief Richard Gono is one of the leading zoos in this area. Tomorrow, when something happens, where will you go? What will be your hiding place? What your praying heart? You want to get up? Where will you be tomorrow? When asked about well-documented harm cotton causes, Chief Gono claimed not to know anything about it. Jimmy Bokeong is a well-known traditional chief in another zoo here in Bone County. He spoke by phone from a secret location where he was conducting a bush school meeting. Every country, every tribe, every people, even someone that people against society. Why the government they want you to stop? Chief Jimmy has a strong warning for legislators. We the transition people, they are, we don't agree. We're talking to them to not pass that bill. But as those fight to protect their practices, the Liberian people are turning against them. Membership of the Sunday has permitted in the last 15 years, from 83% in 2007 to just 35% in 2020, according to a domestic health survey. In response, those have resorted to kidnapping, forced initiation, extortion to make up for the lost income. Senate demand payment from parents with the threat they will let a daughter staff if they do not pay. With nothing to stop them, those are terrorizing girls and parents across central and western counties where Sunday still dominates. A women's rights advocate in Bonn County who asks that her name be withheld for protection confirms forced initiation are on the rise. Because what I say is people see it like business. You have to feed them. You have to get ready for their graduation. And things are hard. People are not prepared for that. So when you forcefully take them there, you put burden on the parents. Chief Gono claimed to discourage forced initiations, but many zoos are not listening. Mothers like Dearest, who decide not to subject their daughter to the same harm they suffer, end up with the choice taken away from them. Deborah Parker is Dearest's mother. It's sort of a children of the children that they carry. They carry them, they, they maltreat them, they take them, they drag them, they stigmatize them in the community by carrying them. And you will never see money for children going there, only with the poor people children. If the law is passed, it will theoretically compel law enforcement to protect girls from the Sunday. This is what Parker wants to see. A year back when they force our children into the FGA or something, we advocated that we wanted justice, we wanted lawyer, we wanted for the woman who carried them to be prosecuted. And we never saw no hear nothing. And so lawyers, they were hesitating that they can't plead for us because they think that a society issue. UN agencies have worked hard to help traditional leaders develop other sources of income to replace the Bush school. 
To find out more about what the UN was doing to stamp our cutting, I spoke with Diodota Makaira, who is the program technical specialist for UN Women's Spotlight Initiative. UN Women is implementing alternative uh, livelihood opportunities uh, for traditional practitioners of FGM in five spotlight initiative pilot uh, counties. Uh, that is Grand Cape Mount, Monserrado, Lofa, and Nimba. It's actually four. So um, under this program, uh, 300 traditional FGM practitioners have benefited from alternative livelihood programs. And uh, the program components included uh, namely um, uh, climate smart agriculture training to enable the traditional uh, practitioners engage in productive farming activities, uh, training and support in business development and uh, literacy, and also uh, village savings and loans association. And also uh, UN Women issued some small grants as revolving fund for uh, alternative livelihood initiatives. So uh, UN Women is also um, in the process to avail uh, for vocational and heritage centers to preserve and promote uh, beneficiaries' cultures, customs, and traditions, while also acting as resource centers and training facilities uh, for the Zoes and girls in the communities to gain business skills. And they are built specifically on pieces of land uh, that previously shattered the bush schools uh, where FGM was practiced. If the Zoes have a place where they can practice their uh, tradition, cultures, customs, and so on, but without engaging in FGM, without making it a secret you know, school, but a public one, so we believe that this is uh, going to contribute much to the end of FGM. So how does UN Women feel about activists' claim that politicians or members of parliament and the government are only performing this bill because they want to you know, please the international donors? UN Women has been in, uh, engaging uh, with the government as well as traditional don, uh, leaders uh, since 2019. So the government and traditional leaders or practitioners, uh, they committed themselves to end the practice in February um, this year. So there was a a policy statement uh, to suspend the practice for three years, pending the passage of the law um, which bans FGM. UN Women doesn't act on claims. We act on facts. For us, when we engage with the government, uh, well, the activities we conduct together, and if they agree to those um, specific activities and move forward the bill, for us we will be happy. But if they try to also uh, stall the bill passage, then we can now make that claim that yes, we have facts, the government is not moving forward the FGMB. But as I mentioned before, th- there are still consultations uh, and as you know, consultations does, don't take one day. It's just pros and cons. They measure the impacts and so on. And then uh, after, uh, that's when people can continue and uh, pass the bid or maybe not pass the bid. But as of now, for us, we, have, we already have positive information that uh, the bid is under review. 
currently, even with the three-year suspension that is enforced, in Lofa County, for example, seven communities are still practicing, I mean, like they're in total defiance. Yeah, uh, changing social norms is not a one-day activity. It's something that, that can even take decades, you know. So everybody needs to put efforts together to make sure that uh, this practice is banned. Uh, but you cannot punish everyone and everybody. And uh, it does, it, that's why we, uh, we look at different approaches. Um, look, for instance, uh, how can we address, address it from the Zoe's communities themselves? How can we address it from uh, a political point of view, uh, having a bill in place, knowing that there is a bill uh, to punish and also prevent the rights of the girls? Uh, how do we talk to the girls themselves so that at least from school, the school age they know uh, that FGM is not uh, you know, a necessity for them to become good wives, for them to, um, to, to become faithful to their culture. The journalist, you also have a role to play. So we count on you very much uh, to also uh, help us in ending this practice. From the language you use, from how you talk to politicians, from how you talk to communities, and also on how often do you talk about this issue in your reports. So I thank you very much for uh, this interview because it shows us that this is a step towards um, the efforts uh, that uh, so many organizations are trying to put together to ensure that we protect uh, the girls and women of Liberia. Next month, we see the start of the latest trial of an accused perpetrator in relation to crimes against humanity in Liberia. A former leader of the United Liberation Movement for Democracy, Conti K, is being tried in the French capital of Paris for crimes against humanity, including torture, rape, and execution. Even this comes as we've heard word that another UNIMO commander, Ali Kosha, will have his appeal heard in the Federal Criminal Court in Switzerland, where he is serving a 20-year sentence after his conviction for war crimes last year. Anthony, you will be traveling to Paris to cover this trial for media across Liberia. So what do we expect from that trial? Well, we know that the trial is expected to run for four weeks. There are four victims who we will not name in order to protect them from repressors. Conti Kamara was born in Kampelenima County. He's 48 years old. Then that may accuses him of torture and acts of barbarism in Foyalofa County in 1993. There are many gruesome allegations in one case, Kamara is accused of torturing the man by tying his elbows behind his back before opening his cage and taking out his heart and eating it. There are also allegations of rape and sexual slavery by Kamara and men honor his command on his orders. Generally, the indictment alleges that Kamara joined in Ulimo's ring of terror of people in this region of Lover County. We need to mention that when he appeared before investigating judges, Contique denied all the allegations, but the indictment did quote him as admitting to being the commander of two sessions of Unimo's rebels. He also admitted reporting to a Unimo commander called Deku and another called Mohamed Tumoya. We expect about three dozen witnesses to testify at the trial, many of them traveling from Liberia. 
we will not be able to name most of them by court order, but we do expect Ali Kosha to testify on Kamara's behalf, just as Kamara testified in Kosha's 2021 trial. And County Kamara himself is expected to take the witness stand in the early stages of the trial to defend himself. Evening, we are going to travel to Lofa, where most of County K's alleged crimes took place once the rains end. But you've been speaking to some people by phone in Lofa who say they were victims of Ulimu. How do they feel to see this trial taking place? Yes, Anthony. You mentioned Ali Okosha. Speaking to alleged victims of Kamara only reminds me of the interviews I had with victims of Kosha in 2020 when I went to Lofa County. I heard the same sense of relief among alleged victims of Ulimo. They are just almost the same things I'm hearing again from Kontike's alleged victims. Just a reminder that we are saying alleged victims because Kontikamara is innocent until proven guilty. Ali Okosha has been found guilty in a court of law, so we can no longer say his crime is alleged. Now with Kontike's trial on the way, all his alleged victims that I spoke with, in fact, were the ones that even made me to know his war name which is Sio Kone. And one dark moment all five of them recounted was the Chisakonje incident where six men were allegedly murdered that day in 1993. Those survivors told me how Kontike and his rebels allegedly killed Sagbowe, Sizek Banya, Samusa, Augustine Pillow, Tama Africa, a well-known blacksmith in the area in Lofa at the time, and Sa Sumno. It's been more than 29 years and yet the memories of the crimes Kontike allegedly committed in Foya are still fresh in the minds of these people. Kontike's alleged victims, just like Kosha victims, say they want death penalty or life imprisonment, which is really not applicable under French laws. Evelyn Pillow, whose youngest brother was among those six people killed in 1993, said that since their government has not been able to prosecute these warlords, She's calling on the international community to punish them. Conte Kamara is now the third Ulimo general or commander to go on trial for war crimes allegedly committed in Liberia under universal jurisdiction. Universal jurisdiction is an international legal principle that allows countries to try people for war crimes or crimes committed against humanity that know no national border. Thanks, Evelyn. In Riverside County, the communities surrounding the Ziadu Tigbe Authorized Community Forest have been fighting to get the locking company EGNG to live up to the terms of their agreement they signed with the communities to lock their forest in return for schools, wells, and support. The company keeps telling the community that they cannot pay because COVID and the blockades put in place by the people have meant they could not lock any timber. But in an investigation, New Narrative's senior reporter Eric Obadu has found the company has been exporting $3 million worth of timber since 2018. Eric joins us now. Eric, how did you find out how EJ&J has exported? I was able to find out through the labor trade system which tracks all legal shipments of logs from Liberia that the company owed nearly 16000 U.S. dollars in stumpage fees to the community since 2018. The stumpage fees are calculated at $1.50 for every cubic meter. So, if EGNG owed 16000 in stumpage fees, they logged about 10,000 cubic meters. We looked at the price 
for the main species locked in Liberia, Eki or Azubi, on the price list kept by the International Tropical Timber Organization and found that much timber would be worth nearly $3 million. But that's not what the company was telling you, or the community, right? No. Stanley Weiser, the general coordinator for EJNJ, has told me repeatedly over the last year that the company has not been able to ship any logs for a range of reasons, from COVID delays to roadblocks put up by angry community members, or because the partner Malaysian company, Brilliant Manju, did not have money. But my investigation has found that is clearly not true. How has the community been reacting? They are becoming quite desperate. They are struggling with running stomachs because of the poor water quality, because of pollution from locking and the company's failure to construct hand pumps and latrines as they promised. There are big dangerous holes that have been left in all of the villages where the company started digging wells and then left it. The community has tried to engage with the company numerous times over the last two years. When they do get a meeting, the company makes a bunch of new commitments and then does nothing. What about the Forestry Development Authority? It's their job to oversee these deals. The FDA has been almost completely useless. The community has followed the rules filing complaints with the community assembly for forwarding to the FDA. Blessing Nangwe is the chief of Zamitan. She told me complaining to the FDA is just a waste of time. The time you have been wanting to hold a protest against the company, but Chief Nangwe and other leaders have been urging them to go through the legal process. The Sustainable Development Institute has been working with the community to help them pursue a lawsuit with the help of Heritage Partners, a leading law firm in Liberia that has been providing pro bono help to other communities facing these troubles. So for now, we will have to see how that goes. What is happening in Riverside is happening across the country. I spoke with James Otto, head of SDR, to find out more. The failure of the companies to comply with the social obligation is not based on their shipping of logs. They have an agreement with the communities. Their agreements are based on time-bound relationship, and the companies are supposed to comply. So, for example, um, the company is supposed to ensure um, that they respect timely consideration in the provisions of the MOU. So, the, the side effect of uh, one um, community loss is forest value areas. So as logging takes place and the community is not unable to get its benefits, they are unable to live up to their livelihood sustainability. Um, also, the communities get fragmented because when companies fail to comply with social agreement, there are other things that are connected to it. So, for example, the trust between the CFMBs and the greater portion of the community gets broken. Because there are people that are living with some level of expectations, some level of anxiety, some level of misinformation that, okay, the CFMB has collected our share of the money and they haven't been able to give that to us. Whereas the company has failed 
or is reneging to fulfill its obligation under the social agreement. So a whole range of social disconnect, social infrastructure has broken down, communication barriers and all those kind of things. Those are the impact um, that happen in the community. So, and, and also the fact that they do not have that strong backing again from our state to stand out to ensure that the company pay the money, make them feel vulnerable. Does it cost the government anything? And, and if so, what impact it has on the government? It does. It costs not just the government. The government by war is the people. These are resources that should be going back into the communities. And these resources should contribute towards education, to better uh, health care, um, to more improve livelihood for, for, for communities, which then uh, kind of um, um, contribute toward nutritional you know, sustainability for community members. And when the people lack these basic social services, then it has implication for the state. Then the state needs to provide more medicine for that community. Then the state needs to provide more education facility for that community. Then the state needs to provide an, a more environmental social protection for, for those communities. And, 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 and to a larger extent, that also breaks our trucks between the communities and, and the government. Because people then start to look at the government as not being able to protect their interests. And it has greater impact on the government because then the government is looked at as a, a two-fled bulldog unable to protect its citizens. If you look at the pro-pro agenda for prosperity and development, it says somewhere in the document that communities, the Liberian, ordinary Liberian, will be taken from the grassroots level to middle income people. If in six years' time we haven't been able to reach that, then it shows a clear indicator that the government is not fulfilling its promises as enshrined in the proposal for prosperity and development. The FDA is the government um, um, responsible for enforcing these laws relating to the forestry setup. Why is it that the FDA is not enforcing some of these laws? I hope the managing director of the Forestry Development Authority could um, ably answer this question. But from the civil society point of view, you know, over a period of time, we've always indicated um, that the Forestry Development Authority needs to do more. One issue around the willpower to get these mistakes corrected. Um, the FDA needs to ensure compliance with its own bubble, the National Forestry Reform Law of Liberia because it considered the three C's, the commercial, the conservation, and the community, but also vested interest. We've seen, and, and we've been able to um, point this out in many different ways, that in some of the CFMAs, there are collusion, collusion between the companies uh, and some interest people within the government, some interest people within the Forestry Development Authority. I mean, things need to be properly done, because if people in the Forestry Development Authority are not taking stand, then that means they are undoing the law by themselves. That's all we have for now. In our next program, you will hear from Paris, the trial of County K, and we will hear from the alleged victims of Ulumo in Lofa County. And we will hear the latest from the Liberia Anti-Corruption Commission after that controversial government overall. You are listening to Democracy in Focus. If you have a story suggestion or want to let us know what you think about our program, text us at WhatsApp number plus 231-770-960-297. You can also comment and follow us on Facebook at New Narratives or check out our website, newnarratives.org. I'm Anthony Stevens. And I'm Evelyn Padesiqui. The music in this episode was by Fifth Vonick. 
Reporting in this episode was funded by the Swedish and U.S. embassies in Liberia and the American Jewish War Service. Thanks for listening. Wear your mask, sanitize for me, oh, and I will do the same for you. And I will do the same for you.